be damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. I've been noticing that it's like very sensitive. You can hear me like screaming on some of the other. Maybe uh, it's not sensitive. Maybe you're just very really loud. loud. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Facts. Um, all right. Caitlin, here we are. It's time for a new episode. Here we are. <laughs> I haven't had coffee today. I don't know. I'm having your coffee from oh. days ago. Don't admit that. That's, <laughs> that's gross. It's just been sitting on the floor. <laughs> but I figure it's cold in the studio, so it's like it's getting refrigerated. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, God. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> She's a woman! Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks in the mirror and says, She's a woman! And for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. How are you doing today, Caitlin? I'm excited for this interview today. Oh, I know. I'm really excited for this interview. It's almost Christmas time as of when we're recording this, I guess. Right. It's almost Christmas time. We have a good interview lined up for today. 2020 is almost over. 2020 is almost over. I want to just repeat that until my mouth gets dry because it's been the absolute worst year ever. And even though it was raining today and we had to haul a bunch of wigs and boxes and luggage through the rain, now we're we're in the safety of our nice studio and we're gonna have a really great day. That's right, and we're gonna get coffee later. And we're gonna get coffee later. <laughs> anyway, Caitlin, I want to dive right into our serious groundbreaking interview, but first I have a little treat for you. Okay. Every week we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. <laughs> the idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, the good news is all about women's rights, period. Came up with that yourself? I yeah. Did come up with that <laughs> you were like sitting here in, in anticipation of saying that joke. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I came up with it in the shower and I was like, oh, it's going in the podcast. <laughs> okay, so here's the good news Scotland just approved a bill that will help make period products free to anyone who needs them. Which is huge news. Which is very huge news. And sort of ridiculous that it's taken this long for even one country to approve it. Because they're going to be the first in the world. Yeah. Um, According to the BBC, members of Scotland's parliament, that's what MSP means, I learned. MSP kept showing up in the article. I'm like, what? Oh! Okay. (laughs) This is why we don't work for the BBC. Exactly. Exactly. So... Uh, Members of Scotland's parliament approved the period products free provision Scotland bill in response to an urgent need. Too many people can't afford or access suitable period products. With average periods lasting five days, it can cost up to eight pounds a month for tampons and pads. And if you convert that to American dollars, that's one million (laughs) dollars. Um, Some struggle to afford the cost. In fact, a survey of more than 2,000 people found that one in four respondents at school, college, or university in Scotland had struggled to access period products. So right now in Scotland, tampons, pads, and some reusable products are funded in schools and colleges and universities, but they will be made more broadly available from greater varieties of outlets in the coming years, and that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's really um, well overdue. If we can afford to like have box folds of condoms to hand out at bars, right? Then why can't we afford, you know, to have free tampons and pads in the bathrooms and stuff? That's what you I was thinking. I mean? Yeah, and I was also thinking like, 
you know, we make toilet paper free, and the whole reason that we do that is so that people can be safe and healthy. Walking around with like poop (laughs) in their underwear, whatever. Right, exactly. So it's only fair. Right. It's not the exact same thing, um, but it is, it definitely stands to reason that if we want to provide things to keep people safe and healthy and happy um, that are absolutely essential that you biologically absolutely need that I think tampons definitely fall under that even more than condoms absolutely also I feel like it's like easier for men to get like Viagra for cheap and stuff you know what I mean than it is for like women or anyone that has a period I should say yeah to get tampons or pads right I don't know I think this is one of the things that I've been thinking about with you like while we're on the road and you're on a bus full of a bunch of gay men do you think that there's any period products thought about on that bus at all (laughs) or kept in the bathroom or kept in storage no I have to like always figure it out for myself which is like fine because that's what I'm used to but it's like you're Wouldn't it be gonna... nice if, like, even a tour bus bathroom had, like, like under the sink along with extra toilet paper also had yeah. feminine products? Because you know I mean? that's the thing that <laughs> this like... bill is doing. I think what it's doing is it's changing the expectations so that people expect there to be free period products the same way that there's toilet paper. And exactly. it's not just about the law itself, but it's changing people's mindset about it. Of course it's Scotland because we love Scotland. We love, we love Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. So Scotland, you know, Caitlin and I are both unmarried and uh, <laughs> we're looking for citizenship. Right. So. so anyone that's listening to this yeah. lives in Scotland. Yeah. And if you are. And specifically in, I'm going to mess up this pronunciation. Edinburgh. Ed- Edinburgh. Oh, Ed- <laughs> someone let us know. Edinburgh. 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 Oh, God. <laughs> specifically, if you live there, marry me, you know? Exactly. <laughs> I, I promise to learn how to pronounce the name. <laughs> but anyway, let this be, let this be an inspiration to the world. I hope that our government and many others yeah. follow suit and that we think of period products as an essential need for every um, human being to have access to and not just, I don't know what we think of them now, like a, a luxury item, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. And now it is time for our amazing interview. And boy, do we have a guest for you guys today. Who's the guest today? (laughs) Today, the guest is Rachel Bloom. And I am so excited. We've been waiting to hear back from her people. You know, our people contacted her people. (laughs) And I have to say that I looked down at my page when I was writing questions and I couldn't think of what to write because I have so many things that I want to talk about. All right, let's let's dive in. Yeah. I'm going to introduce you. Everybody, okay, this is a very exciting day. I'm not a fan of many things because I'm a fan of myself above all, <laughs> but I am a fan of our guest today, Rachel Bloom. Um, she is perhaps best known for her TV show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which tells the story of a young woman coming to terms with her mental health while desperately chasing after one of her exes. That's the best way I can come up with to summarize it, but there's a lot going on because somehow along the way, her bizarre story teaches us about mental illness, gender and sexuality, women's rights, Jewish guilt, pretzel making, and much, much more. Um, But now that the TV show is all wrapped up, Bloom has written a book. It's called I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. And I've had a chance to read it. So let's just say this for sure. Rachel Bloom is far from normal. Rachel, thank you so much (laughs) for joining me today. How are you doing on this fine uh, afternoon for you? Well, I am uh, ironically in the closet. Um, (laughs) 
I am tucked I'm tucked away in my closet where the sound is best. Um I'm good. It's so lovely. Before we started recording, I was just telling you how great you were on All Stars and talking Thank you. You're, you're just you're just great. I'm so happy to be talking to you. And that was a perfect summary of, of Crazy X. Okay. And first of all, super appreciative whenever anyone doesn't call it my Crazy X girlfriend, because um, that happens about half the time I do any podcast yeah. or anything. But also, I know that you're such a genuine fan. Um, I mean, you showed up at our finale, um, literally dressed in the season two theme song outfit, and you looked fantastic. Um, oh, cosplayed out, yeah. <laughs> it was it was so so awesome, and I'm it, I'm so happy to be here talking to you. It was really amazing to go to that event because I get to see a lot of different kinds of fans of things, and I have to say that the fans of our crazy ex girlfriend, let's call her, um, <laughs> <laughs> are just are so warm and excited, and uh, <laughs> like you said, it's ladies and deathly hallows t-shirts just there to have a really great time. So um, that's something that you created. You created uh, an environment for really nice people to come together. So uh, you should you should be proud of that. I am. I really and I yeah. I really love our fan base. They are so smart and they're all yeah they're all different types of people but i but i think the thing that binds them all together and i include myself in that is is this feeling of being somehow an outsider uh, outside the status quo or the normal um and i really miss performing live and meeting all those people on the other side of that um one thing you probably don't miss is having to do interviews about the show in person like you were saying people call it my crazy ex-girlfriend and then one of the things you mentioned in your book is that reporters will <laughs> ask you, have you ever been a crazy ex-girlfriend? And uh, like, what do you think people are trying to get to with that question when they're asking it again and again and again? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's a, look, it's a very high class problem to be like, oh, no one ever got the name of my television show, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very, people have bigger problems. Um. It's it's really hard, I imagine, to be an entertainment journalist because what you're now you're there's so much competition, the pay is getting worse and worse and worse. I know, yeah, uh, because most of them are working freelance, um, and so what you're trying to do is you're just trying to get a, a, a sound, but you're trying to get something I think buzzy so that yeah. people will click on the article or read the article, and so I think. By asking, like, have you ever been a crazy ex-girlfriend? The hope is, oh, I'll get, they'll get me to say something like, yeah, no, I straight up set a guy's house on fire. Headline. Yes, exactly. Right? Head, headline. Crazy ex-girlfriend's Rachel Bloom used to be an arsonist, right? Right. I think you're right that what they want to drive at is that um, they want to they get that soundbite that says that Rachel Bloom is a crazy person, um, which yeah. is funny. They don't really need that soundbite. Now they have this entire book. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, I, I, I like my first question that I wrote down while reading the book is, Rachel, aren't you ashamed of yourself? No. And <laughs> what I mean by that is like, in your book, you are so frank about how not normal you were as a kid. You talk about poop and OCD and lies and all those three things come together at times. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I just wanted to know, I, I think I know the answer for myself, but what is the point of a writing about the things that make you abnormal? Like, what's the message that you're trying to send by exposing yourself as abnormal? What are you telling people? Because what I've learned is that anything you think is abnormal about yourself, if you really tell people, okay, here's this thing about myself, here's why I feel this way, think this way, why this thing happened to me, yeah. you'll start to realize you're not that abnormal. That there's right. actually quite a high bar for you've only you've been the only person on earth to be in this situation. So for example, like the story about my OCD that I tell, it involves like my poop and stuff. Sure, maybe I'm like the one person who like specifically 
their OCD started with like a poop based story of paranoia. But but the underlying issue, which is I had a series of um, intrusive thoughts and I felt like I could only purge my guilt by telling my mother. Yeah. I've since had people say I had that. Like they're like, oh, when I was in middle school, I had that same thing. I had these guilty thoughts about different things and I felt like I had to purge them. And so you're like, you're not that special in your, in what you think might be abnormal about you. And that's, and that's made me feel better. The more, the, the more I kind of share with the world, I find the more the world echoes back to me. Oh yeah. Same. I I've been through that too. And I find that very comforting. So I think that, that the, the sharing to me, the oversharing, I get back what I share. And what yeah, I get yeah. back is like, you're not alone. And, and that's really helpful to me. And then I think it, it helps other people too. Right. To, to read yeah. that they, they can, if they read about my shame or they can read about my kind of <laughs> deep, dark, semi-secrets, that it can help them feel less ashamed and yeah. less alone. Yeah, I think that's one of the powerful things about the book for me, um, without talking about the specifics, is that at first you're like, oh, I take this at face value. She's weird. And then um, by the end, you're like, oh, no, we have a lot in common. <laughs> and that's actually a good journey. That's actually a really great journey to go through. Good. Um, I feel like, good, like we good, have good. a companion um, in, in all of this. Um, speaking of companionship, I felt a lot of... Um, like I felt a lot of echoes in my own life because you talked about one of my favorite hobby horse topics, which is being Jewish mm. as a kid. Uh, and you were the kind of Jewish that I was, which is you don't know any Hebrew, but you definitely know all the names of celebrities that have used slurs against you. <laughs> like, <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to know, do you feel like uh, being a uh Jewish person like contributed to some of the feelings that you had of being an outsider? Yes. And I think that for a lot of it, it was like, I was an outsider anyway. And so being Jewish was just one more thing. And in a way, engaging in like Jewish humor and being like, daedal, 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 made me feel- <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah, daedal, daedal, daedal. Um, yeah. <laughs> made me feel like, okay, well, there's a reason I'm an outsider, even though that wasn't the case. For for the most part, I was an outsider and it had nothing to do with being, with being Jewish, but because we talked about it a lot in the house and because we talked about it being othering for us. And I grew up with some Jews, but not, not, not a, not a ton. And there was definitely a moment in high school where a lot of people I was in drama club with were going to this kind of one mega church near my house yeah, right. and they kept trying to get me to come to youth group and my mom was like you're not and I was like can I just go to youth group they said they wanted me there to sing with them and my mom was like no they're trying to convert you yeah. and I was like no they're not and then I was on AOL I am talking to my friend and I was like Ugh, my mom won't let me come to youth group she thinks I'm she thinks you're trying to convert me or something and it was like silence and I went are are you trying to convert me and this guy went <laughs> Rachel, you're just such a nice person and like it breaks my heart that you're going to go to hell. <laughs> and I realized, oh shit. Oh, this is this is like a thing. Like all of the kind of things that my parents and especially grandparents had talked about of cuz I yeah. heard them talk about feeling like an other for being for being Jewish and yeah. I hadn't necessarily I was an other for for many things, you know. Um yeah. But I was like, oh, shit, there, there is an othering that's happening that I'm not aware of because we're in California. We're not in, like, the South. No one's going to, like, openly ask me where my horns are. Right. But, but behind my back, like, yeah, they're saying I'm going to go to hell, which was, like, more subtle than what my – I mean, my grandpa grew up in Brooklyn with, I think, only Jews. My, my grandmother had grown up in St. Louis with, like, you know, in these kind of Jewish sections of – of cities, but my father had grown up in a mostly Irish Catholic and Italian Catholic section of Boston. So yeah. he didn't grow up around um, a lot of Jews. So, so yeah, there's, I think that a lot of the humor around being Jewish, it's about feeling like an other 
And that's yes. what made me connect to it. And it, it always made me connect to it. And it always made me, I was always fascinated with being a Jew and always fascinated. I, I dropped out of Hebrew school when I was like 10, but yeah. it, I, I never stopped this fascination with the the culture. I was always very, very into the culture. Always very, I'm yeah. always very into like searching my ancestry. And then the man I married grew up so incredibly Jewish. He grew up going to you know, what's called, you know, this like a yeshiva. Um, yeah. So he, he went to an all Jewish private school until eighth grade. He straight up didn't know anyone non-Jewish for the wow. first 13 years of his life. He grew up kosher. They would turn off the lights on Halloween. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't celebrate Halloween cause it's a pagan holiday. So he only celebrated Purim, which is like the great tragedy of his life. I think. Right. Um, yes. And like, actually he doesn't know when Christmas is. My husband still forgets. He's like, Christmas is like the 23rd. Like he, he doesn't know yeah. that it's on the fucking 25th. And he asked me the other day because we have, uh, we have a, you know, a nine month old baby. He was like, Hey, what are we, what are we going to tell her about Santa Claus? Like when you grew up around Christian kids, do you have to keep Santa Claus secret? And I don't know about you. It was surprisingly not a thing for me. Like I remember one time in one show and tell one girl was like, I got this necklace from Santa. And in my head being like, you're a fucking idiot. But I never, (laughs) I never told her that. Yeah. By the way, when you said that, I was like, um, yeah, he should know it's on the 24th. And then you said the 25th. I was like, oh no, I'm one of those chips. I know they had the 24th is important too. That's Christmas Eve. I wasn't completely off. Being a Jewish kid definitely makes you have those experiences, whether you are coming from Orthodox community or Reform. You have those experiences of where, like you said, people telling you that you're going to go to hell. I definitely had those experiences on the playground. But I feel like the thing that made you most an outcast in the world is that you were an extreme theater nerd and you you have an entire musical about your relationship with with musicals in the book you can go to a website and listen to it during the middle of the book that's really what shaped you i think even more was this uh theater nerddom and you started making parody music and comedy music and people like your boyfriend were like that's great but then one of your music videos, I believe, went viral. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about going viral and what that felt like? Well, it was the first, so it was actually the first music video I put online. I'd only been doing comedy music for a relatively short amount of time. And what I was trying to do was just establish myself as a comedian in like the local New York City comedy scene. And people mm-hmm. had been mm-hmm. kind of doing stuff at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater simultaneously with putting stuff online. And I was like, oh, I can do that too. So this music video, Fuck Me Ray Bradbury, went viral. And it was at a time when the aesthetic of of like what went quote unquote viral, first of all, it was in the middle, the kind of beginning middle of like the internet sketch comedy boom. Because right. when Funnier Die, you had the the sketch The Landlord with Funnier Die, I want to say in maybe 2000. Actually, you know what really started? It was Lonely Island's Lazy Sunday in, I believe, right. 2005. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Lonely Island. Yeah. yeah. So like that started, oh, the internet is a, a whole way that, that sketch comedy can completely thrive and you can post one-off things and a lot of people will see them. And then you had Funnier Die and you had the sketch The Landlord. And yes, it was Will Ferrell, but still it was just uploaded to this website. And then comedians started thinking, oh, I can just post like sketches online and I don't need a yeah. gatekeeper. I don't need someone to to tell me, yes, I will make your sketch comedy show for HBO or whatever. Right. B- but the aesthetic of comedy was still very much like eh, kind of shitty looking camera, like very, very handheldy. Like it didn't look- First of all, leave me alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Were you doing stuff at that time? Oh, I really, so oh, I gotta look it up. I gotta look it up. <laughs> but like, that was the aesthetic. It like, it just was, it was like, everyone has their cameras and the cameras are fine. But then I, I feel like it was the Canon 5D slash the Canon 7D came out and suddenly you could get a camera that made things look really beautiful or relatively beautiful for, um, right. 
for not a lot of money. And so people were then starting to make sketches that looked a little more professional. And so when I made this music video, getting, I mean, I paid my friend Paul, who was the DP, actually it was two Pauls, was Paul was the director and then another Paul was the DP. I, I paid the director and the DP like $400 each. I mean, I, I truly robbed yeah. them. Yes. But because um, our DP was so good at what he did and he was so used to being like a one-man band, I, mean, I didn't have a grip or a gaffer or whatever. He just came with his equipment and I had some friends who were unpaid PAs like help him out. And I think because it the video looked so good, it went viral. And it, it took me by surprise. I didn't think it would go viral in the way it did. And I didn't think it would earnestly resonate with science fiction fans and fantasy fans the way that it did. And I, I just remember that first day being holed up in my friend's apartment, like responding to every single Facebook message, saying like, great video and responding with, thank yes. you, thank you so much. I, I think I got Twitter specifically to engage in the video going viral. It was how I learned what a hashtag was. And then I remember at a certain point, I was like, I'm going to sell the song. But I felt, I felt um, guilty for selling, for making money from comedy. So I, I put up a link to the song on iTunes. I was like, proceeds towards um, this song will go towards my next music video. Like I yeah. felt dirty. Doing that. <laughs> money from an internet sketch yeah. but it was it happened so quickly and it's how I got an agent it's how yeah. I got managers it's it led me to my first comedy writing job like it was this huge deal yeah so because of this video and this is one of the key questions that I think relates to this podcast you found yourself in writers rooms and dealing with male writers specifically of a very particular kind. And I, I, on this podcast, we talk to women about what it's like to be in their fields. And I think this is the moment that I'm really curious about. Can you talk about the experience of being a woman in a writer's room dominated by loud, entitled men? Yeah. Well, there were a couple of other variables um, in it. Um, taking a sip of water. Because <laughs> I want to be prepped. Um, so, so the first thing is that I was by far, I was, yes, I was the only girl on the staff. I was also by far like, well, I was the youngest person on the staff. And I was the only person who like, it was their first job, professional job working in comedy. Everyone else had already worked in comedy. They, they'd already just built up that kind of... Um, that nerve, I'm like, okay, I've been on a writing staff before. I can go in with some confidence. And here I was coming off of, at the time, I only had one music video online. I got the job based off of a spec of the show, 30 Rock. I was 23 yeah. years old. I was, re I was really young. I mean, I, I went in being insecure. I remember asking my lawyer, what if I'm not good at this job? Right, you know, right. can, how, what's the excuse? Like, I, I, I did go in scared. And yeah, I remember yeah. there was a period of three days, my first week on the job that I, I, I like did really well, actually. Like my first day there, I felt really confident. And then after that, I started to get torn down. And it was guys who were older than I was. And it wasn't a monolith. Like some of them right. were very nice, but it was just um really this, this like these, these, it was really these two guys and then the kind of like two other guys who let them say whatever they wanted who were like very funny but very mean and their way of being basically the funnier they were feeling the more they would interrupt and cut down everyone else and yes. and especially me because I was new my pitches weren't like amazing sometimes as would happen yeah. when you have an, a new young person and yeah. they would like make fun of me for having like bad pitches. So would they have done that if I were a guy? Maybe. Uh, yeah. Cause, cause I think, but I think that what we're talking about is the pressure of the patriarchy. Right. Because they learned right. this is, this is what I use my comedy to assert dominance over other people that I can't be funny 
it's like me being funny and sharp. It also means like me asserting myself as funnier than other people. And that's like a big comedian thing. Like I'm not naive. A lot of comedians do that. Um, but this room was particularly like really mean. And right. I, and, but I, but the thing is no one was like, fuck off. You're not funny. It was, it was all this, like they'd, they'd be mean in the room and they'd be like, come play poker with us. Right. So they'd, they'd like, or, and then they'd be like, we know we're assholes to you, you know? So it wasn't like the straight up bullying that you expect from a bully. It was, a, it was like, there were things that made me think, is this just me? Am I imagining this? And um, the boss actually had a couple talks where he was like, I know this is like a mean room and, and so-and-so is kind of a bully. And so that helped me feel like, okay, I'm not insane. And then a few times my husband was around me and these guys and he'd be like, these guys hate you. Yeah. <laughs> which, really, which, which really helped. Like, well, I mean, he was my boyfriend at the time, but now my husband, but like it helped because, and, and, and ashamedly, I think I needed to have another guy say, yeah, these guys are mean. Yeah. I don't know if I would have felt as validated in my feelings had it been a woman wow. who was like, you're right, these guys are mean. It took another straight white dude to be like, yeah, those guys are fucking assholes. You're right. So you survived uh, this experience. You even got to talk back uh, to some of the men in those rooms, but that's a whole different story. You have to get the book for it. But fast forward a little bit, you came up with an idea for a television show called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. You started co-creating this show. And I think this is such a fascinating moment because I think a lot of people think that when opportunities come to you, you have to be prepared. You have to be the one to do the job. You have to be trained. And you were not ready. Everything was chaos. <laughs> and it all happened on a timeline that was absolutely absurd. I, I was wondering if you could, uh, like talk about what it's like to take on the biggest opportunity of your life when you are just completely not ready in so many ways. Well, even the initial meeting when I got the email that Aline Brush McKenna saw my internet music videos and wanted to meet with me to discuss like doing a musical television show. I was like, it's, it's something that I'd wanted for a while. At that point I'd been doing my music videos online. A lot of them had been self-funded. I had just released a self-funded album and this is what I wanted, but like it, it still was really scary even going into that meeting because it, it suddenly was like a very big deal meeting that happened very quickly and unexpectedly, but going into the show actually getting ordered. Right. I, I mean, I, I talk about this in the book, but I, I had a whole mental health journey um, before we shot the pilot. Right. And the, the way I kind of learned to deal with pressure and the pressure of this crazy thing is happening and I'm not prepared is just to, <laughs> I got very philosophical and global with it, which is like, you know what? You only live once, just ride the roller coaster. It's yeah, okay. Yeah. Like try, just trying to get myself out of the perspective of this is it. This is destiny. It's yours to fuck up. You know, in the story of your life that is the movie, this is either the moment where you triumph or you have a downward spiral. Trying to get myself out of those fixed narratives and being like, no, just live in the present, live in the moment. Life does not work like that. I mean, we have a, a literal song in Crazy X called like, yeah. life doesn't make narrative sense. That yeah, actually yeah. was really calming and and helped me to be like, no, like... I learned something from my psychiatrist where it's like, you're not a psychic. You don't yeah. know what's going to happen. So don't try to imagine all of these bad outcomes. Don't imagining all the ways you can fuck something up. Even if you fuck it up, <laughs> you're going to fuck it up in a way you could have never imagined. So it's a, it's a waste of time to <laughs> No, thank on, you for that thought that's going to return to me now. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but like all you can do is, you know, do your best in any given moment and yeah. ride the roller coaster and and future you is not some different person. I think this is what I had to realize. Like when I think 
when I'd have anxiety about like me fucking something up, it was almost like this imaginary person who had suddenly gone insane. Right. And right. was, yes. and it's like, no, it's, it's you and you know, you, you're, you're you right now. So just like, think about the evidence. It's like, if, if you're going to think about something, think about all of the reasons in that and all of the evidence of all of the ways in your life you haven't massively fucked shit up. Um, And so you kind of try to like, I mean, for me, it's not engaging in the anxiety is what I learned. Whenever I tried to outsmart the anxiety, it just got me spiraling more and more. That that's why just being in the present being like, well, this is a fucking roller coaster. Just like YOLO. Right, it Which like you love be, you love roller coasters. So. I do love and I love them. <laughs> but just to, to to be like, I'm living in the present. I'm living in the moment. All I can do is be myself in the moment. And if I and and I think in the back of my head, it's like, if anything gets fucked up, then I can just talk about that openly someday yeah. and be like, yeah. yeah, that got fucked up. You know, yeah. and that's kind of how I approach live performance, especially when we were doing like Crazy X Live. Is like. I don't know if I fucked up the line or I cracked, I'd just be like, well, I cracked. And that it's fine. It's not a fuck up. It's part of the show. Yeah. That's like when people ask me, they're like, in season 10, you were so in your head with doubt. And then in All Stars 5, you were so much more confident with no doubts. I'm like, that's actually not what happened at all. What happened was I had the exact same doubts and I just crowd surfed on them instead of (laughs) like bowing to them do you know what i mean yeah, like absolutely and i think people people think they have to you have to defeat your inner demons no you learn to kind of dance with them i guess i love crowd surfing on your doubts is oh a, such a fucking cool image i've never i've never heard that and i'm i'm going to think about i'm going to use that as like a self-soothing um, as something, a, a way to self-soothe myself in the future, self-soothe myself. Right. Um, self-soothe that's right. I wrote a book. Um, <laughs> cause yeah, they never that's, go yeah. away. When you write a book, you have an editor. Thank God. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> cause they never, it never goes away. It's just kind of, and I think that not freaking out when you feel those things and that, and that dovetails into how I now deal with like intrusive thoughts whenever they come up. Cause they'll come up still sometimes and it can be about different things. It's, it's, it, it at the end of the day, it's, the fear of my own anxiety or my own intrusive thoughts. I'm going to fuck this up for myself. That that's really the core of my anxiety slash like intrusive thoughts. And so what I've learned is just like, all right, that's here. Like it's, it's just, um, I had a voice teacher who one time was talking about anxiety and he was from the South and he's like, you know, uh, sometimes a a bird's going to get in your barn. And you don't right. make a nest for it and you don't try to swat away at it. Just like let the bird be there and eventually the bird will fly out. I yeah. thought that was a great way to describe uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Is that, is that how you approach periods where you have, you're out of ideas? Because you kind of talked about that fear a little bit in your book where you'll get to these points where after, what did you create? 157 songs um, for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah. Um, it's like, is that how, is this approach, this philosophy, how you dealt with those periods where you were empty brained? Do you know what I mean? Well, luckily, I mean, Crazy X was such an ensemble. Yeah. Effort. I get, a, I get a lot of the credit for it as I look, as I should, but, um, <laughs> but there were three songwriters. It was me, Jack Dolgen, and of course the late Adam Schlesinger. Adam, yeah. And yeah. so we could, we always, we're working as a team, even when it was like someone just wrote a song themselves, we were always punching up each other's work. Um, there was always a, as far as like the specific fear of running out of song ideas, there was always a cushion because there were yeah. two other people who I yeah. loved and really, really respected. Um, the The place where I ran that ran me ragged on crazy X was the things that only I could do. So I supervised the edit of every music video. Um, Right. And I, it was, I was the person that like did that. Like I would end up doing, uh, sitting with the editor and doing the passes on the music videos. And then of course acting in the show. And that was always really scary where, although that actually just kept me going. 
the schedule was insane, but, but the thing that kept me doing the schedule was I had no choice. <laughs> it's right. either I do the schedule or there's no more television show. <laughs> so like what, it, what, you know, and the few times that I couldn't go on, there were a few times that I was, I got very sick, which I'm something I'm hoping that happens due to COVID is that we, we pressure people to work when they're sick less. Cause I had kissing yes. when, with people when I was sick and vice right. versa. And that should not be happening. Um, but, but I felt like the schedule kept me going so that I just kind of had to do it, which I, when I watch drag race, I have a lot of thoughts. I try to like think about that schedule and I compare it to the crazy X schedule. Cause it seems like such a relentless yeah. high stakes schedule. I mean, the thing that would have, especially a couple of years ago when I was dealing with my own anxiety about crazy X being a pilot and my first kind of bout of success is the thing that would have freaked me out doing drag race is, so I had like sleep anxiety that I was dealing with. Yeah. Especially like if I had an early morning. Right. Like Espe- yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I imagine, cause I imagine you do like these late nights on drag race and then you have to wake up early the next day. Yeah. So the pressure of being like, okay, go to sleep now. I have to like, I have to lip sync tomorrow and I have to make a dress yeah, you tomorrow. Have six like, hours. Yeah. Like that would have, that would have been my main stress. Yeah. Your, your chapter on, and this, if you guys, get nothing else from this episode. I feel like it could be this. Like, if you want to know what it's like to make television, Miss Bloom's chapter on on making television is just the most accurate description. Like, you have five minutes maybe in the bathroom before you have that text message like, hey, still in the bathroom? No pressure, just checking. And everything else is just like, flitting back and forth between very, very cold rooms, um, fielding only questions and cameras. And I was just wondering if you could help me convince our listeners that sometimes making television or sometimes being in the middle of your lifelong dream, uh, to make it more general, is not, doesn't feel glamorous at the time. No, because it's work. It's picture like your high school play. Yeah. Picture, it, I mean, really, it's a lot of... Dude, it's making your high school play except just on a height, a heightened level and it being way harder. Yeah. Once you get used to being on a set, because there's no red carpet on the set. The set doesn't right. feel glamorous. The set is a workplace. Now with Drag Race, it's a little different because obviously you do have those moments of glamour, but I, but I imagine... I mean, many moments of glamour, of course, but like, I imagine that like it felt kind of like on Crazy X when we were shooting the music videos. It's glamour, but like it's still for like you're still at work. Yeah, it's glamour for like a purpose. So it's it's stressful glamour, and also the cold set. Uh, Drag Race is by far the yes, coldest set I've ever been on. The coldest set I've ever been on my life. Okay, so I was like, why is it? So when I did Drag Race, I was two and a half months pregnant. Yeah. Uh, so I was in the height of my, I was like, my body was just going crazy. I was, I had morning sickness. I was nauseous like the whole day. At one point I was twerking with the pit crew in these, in these stiletto Louboutins. And I was like, I'm dizzy. And I realized, oh, I haven't drunk water. I'm, I, and, and they said like, well, we keep the set cold because of the Queens because they're in so many layers. But like, if you're cold, oh. then who's it cold for? I don't know who it's called for, but I thought about that while I was reading your book, just talking about working in uh, television equals going to different places with different circles of hell as far as being freezing. Like whether it's an award show or a cocktail mixer or on set, it's different different kinds of freezing cold. And that's why in All-Stars uh, 5, you can see me wearing a giant like fur parka, faux fur. Everybody oh my God, of course. That's why you were wearing that amazing jacket because it's fucking freezing, of course. <laughs> it's freezing. Oh, I was just so, like, yeah. that looks like a great jacket, but of course. No. Yeah, if you were like, I, like, I think Rachel will agree with this, that if you are watching a television show and you're like, oh my God, it must be so amazing to to do this i wish i could do it yes absolutely but also think two things cold and shapewear and that should (laughs) 
<laughs> I should get you right together. Well, and oh also you're fucking tucking. So like, wait, so on, okay, this is so, I've always wondered this on, on untucked, you know, they obviously call it untucked. Is there any point where you actually get to like fully untuck? No, ma'am. And, yeah. That's what I thought. Right. It's not like you actually like when Ruth says go back, untuck backstage for you to untuck and then get back into drag. That's a whole, that would be a whole thing. Right. Yep, it's, you are not untucked. In fact, that's why probably some of the best fights happen untucked because, on untucked because you have been tucked. <laughs> and you are, you, your body is looking for any kind of release that you can find. And sometimes that's throwing drinks at people. What's um, the like, wait, I have to, because like, I'm, because I've worn shapewear corsets and spanks. Um, yeah. And like, I find that it's, I don't know, it starts to really hurt after four hours that's right did you find that being on drag race like upped your like tucking shapewear tolerance i used to have trouble like sitting in rooms by myself and then like drag race trained me that you know you can do anything no pain or solitude (laughs) like it's too much and i think it did the same thing for me with shapewear i just got like i was like you know pain is life you know (laughs) like it would wow but i remember specifically for uh crazy x live (laughs) caitlin will remember this too i was wearing like a full like nipples to testicles corset and uh, I was sitting in the audience and uh, we hit that, that like four hour mark and I just like started bleeding out of my eyes. <laughs> and I was like, why did I course it to sit down? Like what was the, <laughs> what was the thing? And so um, as I left Crazy X Live, I like ran down to the bathrooms and I like actually like half stripped in the lobby <laughs> Yeah, so I don't think I think you can build your tolerance to shapewear, but you will never you will never fully get over it. You will never fully get over it. Do you find because sometimes there are I don't know if I've been doing especially on Crazy X, if I were doing if I was doing a lot of events in a row, I would find dresses that with which I didn't have to wear Spanx and be like, Oh, this is great. Do you do you sometimes look for dresses or outfits where you wouldn't have to tuck? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Why do you think I wear a big bow and a like a fluffy poodle skirt with every <laughs> with every oh, outfit? That's so I smart. am fully yeah, I'm fully just like um we got lots of tool. Yeah, that's that is absolutely. Especially cuz I don't know about you, but I'm a person that pees every hour on the hour. Uh they so. had to build it into the crazy ex schedule I peed so yeah. much. Yes. yes. Oh, God. Right. Like, oh my God. Wait, if you have to pee and you're tucked, like, what do you do? I, I always told myself that if I wrote a book about my drag experience, it would be called, I can't pee till tomorrow. <laughs> and that's cause that's what I think every time I tuck, I'm like, well, goodbye genitalia. Uh, I'll see you like tomorrow in the AM. Like it is the craziest feeling. And you just, learn to live with your eyeballs floating and oh my (laughs) god that's so like that's that's like it's just it's interesting because you you've heard you hear a lot about like okay women wore corsets and you know for all of human history and that and that corsets at a certain point when they were restricted with like whalebone they started to really like fuck up your insides have does tucking have any health and 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 forgive me if i don't mean to like um be the person being like tell me about how what you do to your dick um (laughs) but 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 like i was i are there any like long-term health repercussions you have to worry about if you're tucking the only thing i can tell you is that when i first started drag i used to i i talk with duct tape um, and it used to hurt all day long my tuck (gasps) used to hurt so bad and then one day I was tucking, I pulled really tight and there was this weird like internal ripping noise. 
and then it never hurt again. Oh my God. <laughs> and so I was like, it's a blessing, yes, that it doesn't hurt anymore, but I'm wondering what that was that I said goodbye to. And actually that, that leads me to my next question for you. Right. Um, because you would please, write- and Please ask anything, because that was a very yeah. interesting story. And thank you for sharing that. Oh, and- just the noise inside. <gasps> that's, what, that's, the, that's what it's like you hear it through your own bones. That's oh my God. That. So I feel like you can identify because- yeah. um, in writing 157 songs about life, you uh, and your team wrote about pretty much every painful and embarrassing thing. And one of the things you wrote about was the miracle of birth. The miracle of birth. <laughs> and uh, my sister wanted to know, uh, because she is uh, a new mother as well, uh, how did it feel going into the experience realizing that you had written about it did the experience <laughs> stack up to the song like yes i went in i think i went into the entire experience of at least being pregnant and giving birth probably being one of the more educated like first time moms yeah. like yeah at least of people i knew because so miracle of birth was actually written by jack and adam Um, I didn't have a hand in it because it was the part of the season where I was just under, I was slammed on set. Um, so that was all Jack and Adam, Jack and Adam interviewed the women in the writer's room who were, who were moms. We had a majority moms writer's room Yes. and Jack actually had a document on his computer. I think that was like horror stories and they based (laughs) the song off of the real. And then Adam had to, had to daughters so he'd been through seeing his his wife give birth and so that song was was based on like all of the most intense stories and experiences um from the women but i'd been hearing those stories for four years my writing partner uh, aline has two kids like um our costume designer has two kids like i would i had heard a lot of a lot of birth stories and then that song kind of being the culmination of it and I'm interested in body stuff too. I always found pregnancy really, really interesting. Right. So when I went into it, um, I think the song really prepared me. And, yeah. and I was really prepared. Like actually the last text conversation that I have with Jack and Adam, because um, the first lyric is your cervix has been closed and plugged with mucus, but soon that viscous plug will be discharged. Yeah. The day that my mucus plug started to shed, I texted Jack and Adam. I was like, yeah. hey, guys. And Adam said, that's mucus to my ears. <laughs> that's terrible. Oh, oh, oh. He was, he was, he and Jack uh, just together, the, the, the most wonderful, cringiest puns oh, you could ever absolutely. hope for. But yeah, I was really prepared. And then I toured a little bit when I was pregnant and- my friend Dan- uh, Danny Jollis, who played George on the show, was my uh, stand-up opener. Yeah. And in some of the shows, yes. I had Danny sing the miracle of birth to me Yes, as part of my show. And it was this very weird... Um, he's like, listen, as a man, I just have some advice. And it was just this very <laughs> weird moment because this, there were moments where like, oh, this song is gruesome. And I'm going to have yeah. to go through this. And it's partially why I knew I wanted an epidural. That's perfect. By the way, my other podcast, As a Man, I Have Some Advice, will be coming out in January. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of the most painful things that a human being can go through, things that there aren't an epidural for. Nice segue. On- online hate. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I, I love your chapter um, on online hate. I think it's an inspiration for the age. And uh, I was wondering if, like, because I obviously, everyone deals with it. I deal with it. Can you tell me what your social media philosophy and practice is right now? Because I feel like I need help at this yeah. moment. Yeah. Well, first of all, like, anything I've been through, I think pales in comparison with anyone who's been on Drag Race. I mean, the fucking, the, the toxicity of some of those fans. I, 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 oi, 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 oi. That's all, I, that's, it just, that scares me. Um, I don't think I'd be able to handle it. 
I have a, I'm torn about social media. I don't keep Instagram and Twitter on my phone most of the time. Um, especially when promoting my book, I'd like schedule a lot of posts. Like you can schedule yeah. posts. Like if you're promoting your shit through that, you know, that website Hootsuite. Um, I know what it does to me, which is what it does to everyone, but it affects me, especially where like, you know, I look at Instagram and then three hours have gone by. I feel right. the addiction. I feel my eyeballs burning. I feel the need for dopamine. I think the more followers you get, the more you crave that attention. Like it, it's chemical. It's, it, it yeah. this stuff is like, it's gambling. It, it's chemically addictive. That's right. And it has, social media has like so many positives, but it's implications for like mental health. Um, I think are really troubling and worrisome. So what, what I try to do is I try to keep it off my phone and I try to use it for mostly promotional purposes. Not always. Yeah. I'll post, um, I'll post like personal pictures and like, sometimes it's really fun. It's really yeah. fun to do an Instagram live. It feels to show your dog good. with an award. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like it feels cause you're cause Vegas is fun. It's yeah. fun to play a couple of hands in blackjack. It's fun to like get drunk. Like, you know, all of these things in moderation are like guilty pleasures, yes, um, but still pleasures. I just, so I try to live it in moderation and I also try to like constantly live in the hypocrisy of it and that like, right. I think a lot of it's wrong, but I still do it and engage in it because I frankly need to for yeah. my job and, and to promote my shit. And there are also a lot of wonderful things that come from it. I just don't, yeah. when I do it in excess, it fucks with my brain and you see it. You see people get <laughs> my psychiatrist. I quote him on the back of the book saying one thing, but in the, oh, in right, the session yeah. <laughs> when I was talking to him and I asked if I could quote him, he's like, here's another quote for you social media brings out the worst in everybody. And I bless him, bless his heart. I think he thought he was being like really clever yes. when he said that. I think he yeah. sometimes doesn't, he's a really smart person. I think sometimes he doesn't realize when he's being profound and the things he thinks are profound aren't as profound. Um, yeah, you're like, let me decide. I'll decide. Yeah, I'll decide what to words. quote. Yeah. <laughs> but it does. Like the high of posting and the need for constant attention, it brings out the worst in everybody. And the, the constant use of the, the hashtag inspo, empowered, all of that shit. I'm amazed for how for how like in for how smart people are now and, and how like um how how much like awareness there is of like other people's social media accounts and not even like cancel culture, but like everyone is kind of on alert. There's so there, the, the little amount of shit that's given to people who like put a thousand hashtags in every post, right. the, the little amount of shit that's given to the kind of shallow sincerity that makes yeah. up a lot of social media. Um, it, and it's because it's positive, right? So you don't want right. to shit on something that's positive. And I don't openly shit on people who are being positive, but I think it brings out the grossest parts of people because it's just about the attention and it's just about the likes and it's just about the retweets. And I feel myself getting sucked into it yeah. and I feel myself reading the mentions and then you get distracted by the one bad thing in the yeah. sea of all of the good things. It's, and, and I think the thing that I've learned that's helped me emotionally is I used to get upset at a, at a, at a mean comment and then feel ashamed be like, what? Am I, it's just the internet. Why am I upset? Right. And no, it's okay. Like, if someone is mean to you online, you're not silly for getting upset. You're a human yeah. being. Like, I think that other people being like, oh, it's the internet. Who fucking cares? But then, all right, if it's the internet, who fucking cares? Then why are why do we put so much stock on what's on the internet? Clearly, Literally, we care yeah, yeah. a great deal. And yeah, to read and print a terrible thing about you. So what if it's like a troll living in his mom's basement or whatever? That doesn't matter. It's still yeah. been said to you in print and it fucking hurts. So yeah. I think putting the emotion back in all of that shit um, is very key and, and, and humanizing everyone. I, I, I really like that idea that, you know, you shouldn't punish yourself for suffering. It just adds another layer that you don't need 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it and it's like and it stigmatizes getting your feelings hurt when someone's like, "Fuck you! I wish you'd fucking die." Like, yeah, that hurts. That hurts. We shouldn't be saying that to each other. No one should have that said to them, except for you know, the Trumps. You know, they should have trolling because uh, Donald Trump is killing people. I'm like, I'm trying to quantify that. Like, well, no, I don't want him to die, and you know, I'm trying to um, trying to get ahead of. Um, uh, okay, now as as a journalist, right I have my headline for this podcast. Rachel <laughs> <laughs> calls for the death of. <laughs> Thanks, we've got our little soundbite, Rachel. We can. Oh my God, you're welcome. Um, uh, happy to help. Happy to help. Um, you're she set fire to his to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is most people who uh, aren't ignoring a pandemic, and um. <laughs> putting children in cages who who have things horrible things said to them the the punishment does not fit the crime and even when it does that shit fucking hurts and to pretend like it doesn't hurt or to pretend like well it it, if it hurts you then you're just too sensitive that's bullshit i think that it it should be more like don't say that shit to people yeah like we're getting so the internet makes people so callous and that's and that callousness and that black and white thinking, it's wrong. And I don't know how to, to reconcile the hypocrisy with the fact that I talk about this, but yet I'm still on. But the least I can do is I try to get sucked up in reading comments. I try to put a time limit and really having it off of my phone helps a great deal. This so I have to ask you. Yes. Um, I had the honor of seeing your uh, Crazy X live and it made me wonder, um, and especially after reading this book, uh, do you see Crazy X or another Bloom project ever going to Broadway? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. There's something I'm I'm working on now. Um, that I mean, I'm I'm working on the the Nanny musical as as a writer. But no, there there are numerous projects that I'm like in various stages of development. I would I definitely want to go to Broadway at some point if they'll have me. Uh- Oh, so excited. Thank you so, so much for talking with me today. This has been, this has been truly wonderful. Everyone get this book. If you haven't watched uh, Crazy X, not Possessive, uh, Crazy X, <laughs> please get into it. Wait, I, my burning question for you. Yeah. Because this is, because again, when I watch Drag Race, I think about what would make me anxious. <sighs> okay. When you have the musical numbers, including on the finale, do you get to do it more than once? That's my burning question. You get to do it twice. Okay, that's great. That's a relief. Right? And that's what uh, I would tell myself. I'd be like, it's okay. You get to do it two times. You get like to do that, it two that, times. Like that, that, it like little outs like that would help my anxiety. That's really good. Do you know what's the funny thing is though? And like there's like a life lesson hidden in here. That first time when you are sure you're going to mess it up and you're so terrified, you nail it. It's the second time when you're confident that you mess it up. And uh, yeah, so I just think that like that's so much of life. Every that terror can actually help you and uh, comfort can be your downfall. Just like as if you've ever done theater, that first night is the glory night. And the second night when you're all like, oh, we did it before. That's when the, uh, <laughs> that's when all the problems start. Absolutely. So, that makes yeah. so much sense. Thank you. I, I needed to know that. Don't worry. It's still terrifying for, for all those uh, Drag Race fans. Don't well, worry. Then, We're still terrified, Then you have I to sew. I mean, the sewing. Well, anyway, that's my podcast is help me uh, talk me through my anxiety while I'm watching Drag Race. Um, yes! I'll have my people call your people so that uh, we can put together. Uh, Miss Cracker calms Rachel Bloom's nerves. Oh, through okay, okay, so like, okay, so you got like, a, you got a day off, right? Like you got, you got, okay. So for Snatch Game, like, okay, you had, you got to bring multiple wigs. Okay, okay, that's good. And I'll bring a list of everything we ate, just so you know. <laughs> Okay. Oh Bathroom break and then macaroni and cheese. Oh, okay, good. Okay, you got to eat. That's good. You're a nice Jewish mother now, and that's it. <laughs> no, I just worry for everybody on there. Thank you so much, Rachel. Um, thank you for taking time today for cramming yourself in your closet. And everybody, watch the show, get the book. That's all I can say. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that was such a great experience. We talked for an hour 
about Jewy stuff, theater stuff, crazy ex-girlfriend, social media, like all the things that are on my mind all the time. Yeah, she's really a kindred spirit, I feel. Oh, I feel too. <laughs> and I could just imagine her like curled up in the closet. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. As like there's a baby probably crying outside, but <laughs> yes. she's in the closet, you know, exactly. having her get me the fuck out of here moment. <laughs> exactly, yes. Oh, so, um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I feel like I've said this 30 times in the last 30 minutes, but if mm-hmm. you haven't watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend yet, or, go go watch because it yeah. like whatever your um thing that makes you different is yeah. it is covered it brings lightness to things that are heavy yes you know what i mean absolutely and that's really refreshing yeah but wait i i have a whole setup now i have a whole script for when we're done oh yeah i'm, I'm working oh, wow. okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so we're actually going to take a quick break now but we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. And it's time for the end of the episode, Caitlin. Oh my God, I'm dropping things. It's time for the end of the episode, Caitlin. So first of all, I want to say this. If you liked your time with us today and you're enjoying that buzzing noise that's happening in the background, <laughs> make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much. We're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show starting in 2021. Wait, I was going to suggest that. You were going to suggest that? But then I never did. But I was like, I've seen other podcasters do that and might prompt more people to make reviews. Because we're going to give them special attention. Caitlin, our minds. I know. Our minds. (laughs) Anyway, enough about that. It's time for the credits. This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's the woman! And I'll be with you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like we need to go to sleep. Oh, absolutely. (laughs)